when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week on Decoder, I'm talking to Mercedes CEO Ola Shalanius. Ola has been CEO of Mercedes since 2019, but he's actually been at Mercedes far longer. He's worked at the company since 1993. During that run, Mercedes first spent time getting a lot bigger. The company famously merged with Chrysler for a while, forming a giant called Daimler Chrysler. But over the past few years, it's actually been getting much smaller and more focused. The Chrysler deal was, of course, undone. But recently, Ola spun off the truck division into its own public company called Daimler Trucks, leaving Mercedes to stand alone as a premium car brand. We talked a lot about that focus. I think it's interesting that car companies are either consolidating into giant conglomerates like Stellantis or shrinking and focusing like Mercedes. A lot of that is driven by the huge shift to EVs, of course, but then on top of that, to cars essentially becoming rolling computers. You'll hear Ola refer to cars as digital products a lot and to Mercedes itself as a tech company. Actually, he says it's a luxury tech company, which, yeah, it's Mercedes. The company has plans to electrify all of its cars. It's shipping two new EVs right now, the EQS and EQE. Both of them have massive infotainment screens inside that run Mercedes' proprietary M-Bucks system, which even has its own voice assistant called Hey Mercedes. Where all that tech comes from, how it gets updated, and how car companies pay to support our new rolling computers over time are still open questions. And Ola was clear that Mercedes is still experimenting with the answers, but that it's important to him that they own the primary user experience in the car. Of course, we talked about the usual EV topics like charging networks and interoperability. Ola's got a pretty good line about Elon and LinkedIn in there, which made me laugh. And then, of course, I had to ask about Apple's recent announcement that the next version of CarPlay would be able to take over every display in the car, including the instrument cluster. Apple showed a Mercedes logo on a slide during that presentation. Is Ola ready to hand over his UI to Cupertino? Let's find out. Ola Shalanius, CEO of Mercedes. Here we go. Ola Shalanius, welcome to Decoder. Great to be with you. Thanks. Okay, you told me at the beginning to just introduce you as the CEO of Mercedes-Benz, but you have these complicated titles that I want to understand. You are also the chairman of the board of management of the Mercedes-Benz Group AG. You're also the head of Mercedes. Just explain what all that means to us. Yeah, I would say that's a typical German thing. That's what it ends up if you translate my German title. So it uh, sounds all very complicated, but the gist of it is I'm the CEO of Mercedes-Benz. That's great. I'm very excited you're here. I always joke that this is a show about org charts. So I'm all, when I see stuff like that, I always want to know. But the gist of it is you're the CEO of Mercedes, and there's quite a lot to talk about. Let's start kind of there with the basic structure. You have been the CEO for a while now. How is Mercedes structured? It's pretty straightforward. We're a luxury and a tech car company. and We have a management board and a supervisory board, naturally. 
We run the company functionally, as most car companies do. We have an R&D department, uh, production operations, and uh, marketing and sales, and then the other supporting functions. We used to be part of a conglomerate, as you know, called Daimler, but we decided to split the company last year. So since the beginning of this year, it is purely Mercedes-Benz. There's a lot in there that I want to pull out. So let's start with just that decision to split the company. You split off the truck company. It's now Daimler Truck, and you have Mercedes-Benz. If I just look around the industry, it seems like every company is going hard in one of two directions. It's either massive consolidation, a company like Stellantis is created out of a huge merger, and now they're a house of brands, or it's reduction in brands and focus. So on the one hand, you have Stellantis and VW and GM. They're massive house of brand companies. And on the other hand, you have Ford and Mercedes and Honda. You went from one to the other, right? There was Daimler, Chrysler, which was a huge company created out of a merger. Over time, it's been getting smaller. You've just gotten smaller still. Why make that decision? Why go in that path? Well, Daimler had forever and a day been a conglomerate with two main industrial businesses. On the one hand, the cars, everybody knows Mercedes-Benz, luxury tech car company. But at the same time with Daimler trucks, it is uh, the world's leading, the world's biggest commercial vehicle producer. And it comes from the uh, history of the company that uh, Gottlieb Daimler, actually, he didn't just invent the car, he invented the truck and, and all, all other things that was uh, propelled by, by a combustion engine back then. When we started this discussion internally to uh, essentially break up the company and create two pure play uh, entities, it's really the transformation that the auto industry is going through that was the spark of this. In this age of transformation, we have to reinvent the original invention. What we need is speed, speed in decision-making, speed in innovation. And if you look at it, luxury cars and let's say class eight trucks has have fundamentally different customer groups. Uh, One customer group is looking for that something special going from A to B in style. The other one is looking for a high-tech product, very TCO, total cost of ownership driven, transport good where it comes down to, you know, the last cent per mile. So we said, let's make the company, even though it's a huge group, more nimble, more fast, get rid of the two-tier decision-making process, both in the management board and on the supervisor boards, have an undivided 100% focus on our customers. And also in a way, especially for the truck guys, which was the a large business, but the smaller business inside the group, let's put them out there in the spotlight and release some entrepreneurial energy by <laughs> you know listing this stock. So you get the whole attention of the financial market on that one stock and create uh, entrepreneurial energy around that. So speed, entrepreneurship, uh, those are the main reasons why we split the company. You said you had to reinvent the whole product. You had to reinvent the whole car. That's obviously a reference to EVs. There's one more split you could do. Ford just did something along these lines. They said, we're going to have an internal combustion business and an EV business, and they're going to be different. And we're just going to split those up so the EV people can focus, and then our legacy car business can focus. You have two products, right? You have the EQ products, which are your EVs, any of the traditional products. Are you thinking of a further split along those lines? Uh, Not at all, because the attitude of our brand and our Mercedes is there is no such thing as kind of yesterday's business and tomorrow's business. There's only one Mercedes-Benz. That Mercedes-Benz is going into the future. Uh, We have made a clear and definitive decision. We're going all in on electric. In fact, as of 2025, all new architectures, vehicle architectures from Mercedes, on which we will have several different models, will be electric only. So we didn't want to create a future team and a current team or past team. Also, the psychology of the organization is that everybody's working on the future, and that future is zero emission. So it doesn't make sense for us to split the company. We're going to take the whole company into that electric and digital future. There's one Mercedes-Benz brand promise, one team spirit, uh, and one joint future for the business. Let me push on that a little bit. The whole company is going in the future. You have people in plants around the world who are building gasoline engines. At the time, they were one of the most stunning technological achievements in history. Mercedes engines in particular are like stunning technological achievements. When you switch the whole company 
to EVs, how do you bring all of those folks along? Because that doesn't seem like you can tell your folks in Alabama assembling engines into ICE cars, hey, focus on the EQ line. That doesn't seem like that would give them much to do. How do you bring that whole part of the company along? So if we look at this in more detail, especially the industrial footprint, but also the uh, R&D footprint, uh, you're absolutely right that our high-tech electrified combustion-based vehicles, they will continue to produce positive cash flows and delight (laughs) customers around the world for many years to come. But the destination that we're going is an all-electric destination. So look at production for a second. We have the plants where we build the cars and we have the plants where we build the powertrain. In our car plants, we have already more or less converted all of our assembly plants to dual use already. And they will gradually then flip over as the take rate for EVs go up to EV only. And then you rightly point out that you have some dedicated facilities that build uh, combustion engines and, um, for instance, transmissions to go with those combustion engines. We most recently here at at the headquarters at one of the original locations of Mercedes, which is a traditional powertrain tech location and production location, we have decided to invest uh, many hundreds of millions industrializing both the R&D and tech center for batteries as well as the next gen uh, e-drive train. So you will have a gradual switch over there as well. Yes, some of those facilities, some of those factories eventually in terms of the physical buildings will be retired once you step out of combustion production, but you move people across. And in R&D, it's already the case that the people that work on the electric drivetrain and the people that work on the uh, combustion uh, powertrain, it's almost like you can meander back and forth between those two. And and many people that used to be uh, some of our best engineers in the combustion world, they're already since a couple or three years on the electric side. So we're not leaving anybody from the team behind. We know we have a big transformation task. We know that that's also a people transformation task, a training task. But we're very confident that on the way to 2030, which is our aggressive goal of being able to go all electric, uh, we can do the people transformation as well. 2030 is an aggressive date, right? It's tomorrow in car terms, right? It's uh, eight years from now. And I'm assuming that you have a roadmap of cars that is eight years out in the future. What are the metrics that you as CEO look at to decide whether you're on track? What are you evaluating to say, okay, we're on track to hit the big goal by all electric by 2030? Uh, none of us has a crystal ball. So we don't know exactly what the market dynamics in in, in the big uh, market's going to be in 2030. So, you know, what's Europe going to look like? What's United States, North America going to look like? China is the biggest market and, and other important markets like Japan, Korea, and so on. So we have to take uh, at this stage a little bit of a guess, but you have to strategically decide who do you want to be And are you going to try to make the market or wait for the market? We have decided that we want to make the market. So if it is 2030 or 2030 plus X, I don't think it matters that much, plus minus a couple of years here or there. Uh, As you say, 2030 in auto terms is is really tomorrow. It's kind of the next-gen architectures. And that's why we made the decision that uh, from 25 forward, all new architectures will be EV only. Thereby, we can put ourselves in a position to serve a market 100% electric if that market is ready. So that's what we're going for. What's the metric that we will watch? It's the adoption rate. So, you know, percentage of sales in in the years to come, you know, where are we going to be in 2030? Uh, How do we ramp up once we go with this EV-only architectures? How fast does that go? So we still have some opportunity to tune that and adjust a little bit uh, plus minus But strategically, uh, we have decided Mercedes is going into this future and we're going to try to make the market by creating the most desirable cars, the most exciting products, uh, electric and digital, and of course, beautiful. Mercedes is a a big company. It's obviously one of the most famous brands in the world. You operate around the world. You're in the middle of this big transition. You've been the CEO since 2019. How do you make decisions? What's your decision-making framework? How do I make decisions? I, I can't pull out the manual out of the drawer and, and read, you know, do do step one, two, three, four. I would say um, I do gather a lot of information. I'm curious. Uh, I do listen to a lot of people. I like differing opinions. 
so that uh, you don't just talk to a bunch of uh, yes men. If you're at the top of a company, you know, in a hierarchy, sometimes you have the tendency that people, you know, they, they tell you what they think you want to hear. I try to also speak to people that I know will also say what I don't want to hear uh, to go through that challenge. And sometimes you then have to sit back and digest and compute. And I had this experience actually at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all in lockdown. I choose to do the lockdown in the office, even if I was sitting more or less alone in the office, because I wasn't traveling anymore. I had much more time than I had before. <laughs> Time to reflect. And sometimes sitting alone in the evening after you've had a marathon of uh, video conferences, just to sit and reflect, digest that information, also use a little bit of your intuition and your experience and make a decision. Uh, and then try to win your team around that decision. None of us has the crystal ball. We have to go with judgment calls and try to look into the future uh, and guess what's going to happen and then make the best play for your company. So it's, it's a combination of those things. Every time you answer a question, I have five more questions. You described the, the products as electric and digital, and you've referred to Mercedes as a tech company several times now. What do you mean by digital products? What do you mean by Mercedes as a tech company? So next to the revolution that is going on on the drivetrain, switching from one technology to another one, I think we are also seeing a paradigm shift of how you approach software and the electric electronic architecture in a vehicle. For the longest time, uh, like the last three decades or so, it has been a, uh, a task where we have integrated a bunch of ECUs, small computers that came with software packagers. And we were the ultimate uh, vehicle integrators, taking all these ECUs and all these software packages, all those functions, and making them into a coherent product that works in all dimensions. I think we have come to the end of that era now, and it's almost like you start with a white sheet of paper. We call it MBOS, Mercedes-Benz Operating System where you say, now uh, let's stand back here and see, is this going to work as we get more processing power, better sensors, better software, we can use artificial intelligence, we have a learning vehicle. And we said, no, that American quilt of ECUs that you have to kind of <laughs> sew together, it's not going to work. It's going to be too complicated. So we're now creating one holistic software stack. Yes, that stack has different layers and also uh, several domains, but it is approached as we architect it as one house with different rooms in it. Together with that comes then a consolidated EE architecture. So less computers, less ECUs, but more powerful computers. This whole construct is then uh, totally over the air downloadable. So every single aspect and function of the car you can address with more technology, better software as the vehicle uh, is in the market. So it's a paradigm shift here. It's going to make the product better. It's also going to make it fresher. So here's a, another difference to the past. In the past, when you bought your car, you drove off the lot, it was like the peak technology of that product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> From that point forward, it started to you know, age. In the case of a Mercedes, age like a French wine, so it can also get better <laughs> with time. Uh, but now, now, essentially, when you drive off the lot, you don't reach peak technology because we can send more technology to you after the purchase. That's what the digital side is all about. So I, I've heard this theme from many folks in the auto industry. You're basically saying the car is now a rolling computer. One of the jokes I make on Decoder all the time is the second you add a computer to something, you inherit a bunch of computer problems, like very familiar computer problems. You need uh, you need to care for those computers. You have interface issues. There are bugs. You need to do security updates. There is not only the opportunity to do software updates over the air, the expectation from a customer that you will do endless software updates, which obviously incur a cost. How are you thinking about all those computer problems? Are you just dedicating lots of people to software now? Are you thinking, okay, there's a point at which we'll stop updating the cars because Mercedes owners will get new cars? 
Because that seems like the central challenge to making anything a computer is inheriting all of the problems of the computer industry while still having to make the cars work well. Well, this is the thing with automotive. It's not something that you have on your desk at, at home, you know, in ambient temperature, sitting still all the time. <laughs> this, is a, this is a moving machine that can go from, I, I guess, minus 40 degrees C to plus 60 degrees, shaking and moving all the time. So if you want to take that computer into automotive grade, it's a bigger challenge. But it's a challenge that we have been working on uh, for 100 plus years. So we're making that computer more robust, if you will. The uh, download capability and keeping it fresh is hugely important. We're not waiting for our first full MBOS version that we launch in the latter, latter half of 2024 for this. We actually started uh, already four years ago in um, 2018 with what we called MBUX, our uh, mm -hmm. infotainment domain. So we have gathered a lot of experience in the last four years with millions of connected cars, uh, keeping them fresh, making sure that everything is perfect and that every time you do a software dump, <laughs> that it's not like sometimes that you experienced with your computer, you turn it on, it kind of doesn't work. Uh, that wouldn't be a great thing with a car. It always has to work and it needs to be reliable. It needs to be safe. So in terms of job profiles, you're absolutely right. We're adding a lot of software engineers that we, in, in the past, maybe... Uh, the work was done by our suppliers, by our partners, and now we do more of it uh, in-house. Uh, if you look at the software stack, the MBOS software stack, to get the architect's drawing for the fundamentals of that stack is really, really important. And let's not forget here, people usually think when they think about this, they think about the infotainment domain, you know, navigation and communication and entertainment and so on. But it's only one domain. You have the drive domain, you have the autonomous drive domain, you have the whole body domain. You have to get all of those things to speak to each other. So the infrastructure layer and the middleware of your software stack horizontally goes across. So to get that right, I think it's very, very, very important. And that's why we take so much time in the concept engineering of the software stack as we go into an era where then the whole car is downloadable. And you're right, you cannot leave that car stranded out there. Customers would not accept that. So we will keep those alive. But maybe a bit, you know, like Apple with, with iOS and, and the iPhone, you can constantly update your iPhone with the latest software. So now you don't have a generation where you kind of, you do a generation for two or three years and then you kill it and then you start from scratch and do another generation. It's not like that. It's more like a river flowing and that river never ends and you add more water to it. So more software dumps onto uh, the main stack. And that's why you have to also look at backwards compatibility when you develop this. So Apple's a really good comparison. Actually, all the smartphone makers are really good comparisons. I have often heard of the modern EV described as a, a cell phone on wheels. The benefit that Apple and Google have is that they are constantly monetizing their operating systems. Right, Every time you push a button on iOS to buy something, Apple takes 30% of that transaction. Google obviously has the same rules. They also have a massive advertising business across the web. All of that subsidizes the software work in iOS and Android that enables them to keep pushing those updates out to people. The business model is fundamentally understandable. Right now with a car, I buy the car from you once, I drive it off the lot, and now you're committing to spending money to update that car forever. Where do you see the back end of revenue that makes that commitment worthwhile? Or is it just Mercedes are really expensive, we'll just price all that margin in at the beginning and hope it all works out at the end? So I think it's it's a bit of both. Yeah, if you get yourself the new EQS and you get that absolutely insane hyperscreen <laughs> that covers the <laughs> whole dashboard, that in itself it's almost like uh, tech art. It's that beautiful. And yeah, you charge for that, but you don't charge for the, just for the screen. You charge for the functionality that comes with it. So now that you have the car in the field, uh, where's the potential for recurring revenues? I see, I see good potential for this. Uh, one of the most obvious domains is then one of the things that it's all about getting from A to B. As we add more autonomous functions to the vehicle, 
And uh, through software updates, it becomes more and more capable. And we have a supercomputer processor in the vehicle and enough storage space so we can make the car better over the years. I uh, definitely think that we can monetize that. Uh, so autonomous drive is one area. Smart charging is another area. In the infotainment domain, we'll have to see. Much of the infotainment domain you kind of get with your smartphone. Uh, but the way you present it in the car and you turn it into a holistic experience, even your car could be an autonomous mode. It could be a 4D cinema. We have boosters, even, you know, loudspeaker boosters in the seat to give you a 4D sound. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. If you get an S-Class or an EQS or something, you try that out, it like, kind of blows you away. And you can even work with the car to use your air conditioning, your scent, sound, everything, light, to create the best movie experience that you've ever had. Could you monetize that? Probably. Could you put digital art onto the uh, passenger front screen of your car to just enjoy uh, maybe even sell <laughs> NFT uh, art. <laughs> Who knows? I think we have to be creative about it. But one thing we know for sure is that the digital side of the vehicle, in our case, also kind of the aesthetically luxury digital feel of the vehicle, it's a crucial buying criteria. So to invest into this field is a must. It's an absolute must for us. And it needs to feel like a Mercedes. It can't be too generic. Yes, the functionality needs to be clear. It needs to be intuitive and everything that you expect. But uh, at Mercedes, aesthetically, it needs to go a little bit beyond that. And also think about how you integrate the body functions of the vehicle with that digital world. So do I think we can make money with it? Yes. Do I know exactly how much? No. But there is potential there. And if we want to reap the benefit of that potential, we got to have the technology in the car. And that's why we're doing this. So it sounds like right now you're at a place where luxury buyers, especially Mercedes buyers, are expecting things like the hyperscreen. So you have to invest in them and put them there. That also helps you with your long-term architecture plans. And then somewhere down the line, you mentioned recurring revenue. You're going to start building systems collect revenue over time. That sounds like subscriptions to artwork in the car or enabling the 40 cinema mode. Is that how you're thinking that eventually you're going to subscribe to features in the car? Yes. I think you need to offer the customers both. Some customers, they don't look at the price. They just want the best product, the most desirable product and go like, whatever it costs, just let me pay now and that's it. <laughs> so you, you kind of have to have that option as well. But I think you can add functionality as you go along and then uh, through the App Store, just let people choose what they want. And we have the App Store today, so it's not something that is in the future. Uh, when I get the financial report every month, I look at, you know, how much money did we generate through the App Store, which is, you know, true digital recurring revenue. It's not enough that I have to do an ad hoc for a, prof a positive profit warning. We're not, we're not at that stage yet. But I look at that number, and one thing I see is that number every month is bigger than the month before. And here it comes with the whole idea of an installed base. And there the analogy with the smartphones work again. Then it's not about just selling whatever your two and a half million vehicles a year. Your installed base, it grows and grows and grows and grows. So one day you have tens of millions of vehicle in your install base. And if you can start monetizing some per month in that install base, actually the lever starts looking quite attractive. So I think we're on to something here. I think it's too early to say how much this economic potential is, but it's there. And if you want to capture it, you need to do things like MBOS so that the infrastructure, your, the technological infrastructure of your car and the cloud infrastructure that, of course, goes with that because much of the intelligence is in the cloud. Your customer profile is in the cloud, like in a smartphone. You have to have all those building blocks. If you don't have those, you certainly are not going to get to that revenue. And we are putting all the building blocks in place. So that is a pretty striking vision of the future of the car. You mentioned the hyperscreen, which if listeners have not seen the hyperscreen and the EQS or the EQ, like go look at a picture and come back. It is a wild design concept in these cars. It is actually shipping. It's amazing. I would put all that next to, well, I was just at WWDC a couple days ago and Apple showed a vision for the future of CarPlay, 
that would take over all of those screens. They were very aggressive about it. They said, this is the future of CarPlay. We're going to take over all these screens, including your instrument cluster and your speedometer. We're going to take over the entire hyperscreen. And then they said, and we're working with our partners, and they showed a Mercedes logo. Is that something that you would let Apple do, is plug in a phone and take over the entire user interface of the car? What I think Mercedes customers expect is that they have access to a holistic Mercedes-Benz universe. And it's not just about the physical product. It's also about the digital interface. You have your Mercedes ID, your Mercedes Me ID. With that ID from the sofa in your living room, you can, you know, turn on uh, the air con or the heating in the winter so you get into a warm car. You even have things like Urban Guard where you use the sensors of the car to check if your car is safe. (laughs) You could maybe even check in the future if if your driveway is safe. So there are so many aspects, so many domains also to autonomous drive and so on and so forth. So I don't think that you can rip out one piece of it and just say, you know, here's an island sitting on its own (laughs) and the mainland of the car and all the other islands around the car are not integrated into that. So we are very much looking at providing a holistic Mercedes experience. It's physical and it's digital, it's beautiful, it's intuitive. Does that mean that that's a closed environment? Of course not. You have to speak to the ecosystems of the platform companies. You can have Apple CarPlay in our cars today. So if you choose to do that, if that's more convenient for you, you can do it. Uh, And it covers some functions, but it doesn't cover all the functions of the car. And I doubt that it ever will because every single car maker has its own interfaces to all those different functions down to the massage seat or whatever it may be in your vehicle. In a Mercedes, of course, usually a little bit more than maybe <laughs> a little bit more than in cars in the volume segment. So if you want a holistic and coherent experience in Mercedes, I think you're going to stick to the Mercedes ecosystem in that car, but have uh, an, an open source mentality of MBOS to interact with other ecosystems that, uh, that the customers also use. Let me ask that question more directly. Apple wants to create a version of CarPlay where you plug in the phone and it takes over all the screens. Are you going to let them do that? I watched that video. Uh, what we will do with them, we'll see. We'll have to discuss that. What our goal is, is, is clear, is to have a, a Mercedes experience through and through. Were you surprised when you saw the Mercedes logo on that slide? No, not at all, because we work together with Apple since years. We have a very, very good uh, relationship with them and uh, decided early on that uh, to have the the CarPlay function is something that customers want and some people use it. So uh, not at all. And and how we then will further develop that relationship, it's something we'll have to discuss. I'm always curious how those slides come about, because the implication from that slide is we just showed you a thing and then we're going to show you a bunch of logos. And the implication is all of the brands that we're showing you will do this version of CarPlay. But you have now said pretty directly you're not going to let Apple take over the instrument cluster and all the other screens. So how do you, how do you see that tension playing out? Like how do those conversations with Apple and Google go? What we specifically will discuss with them is, I don't want to jump the gun here. Uh, it's something we have to sit down and discuss with them. So I can, I can kind of only speak for what we are doing. But what our goal is, is clear. And, and MBOS and the infotainment domain, again, one of several domains, uh, including the instrument cluster. Don't worry, you will, you will, you will have a true Mercedes luxury feel <laughs> in every Mercedes in the future. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into Mercedes EV strategy. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US slash innovate. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with Ola Shalanius. We've mostly been talking about EVs. You said they're the future. You transitioned the company to it. EVs still kind of a, you know, they're at the very beginning stages. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, you, you did have the EQS out. You now have the EQE out. Gas prices around the world are skyrocketing. Are you seeing buyers shift to EVs more aggressively or interest shifting to EVs more aggressively because of gas prices? Or has that just been happening on its own? Uh, whereas uh, total cost of ownership for people that buy an EQS or buy an EQE, it might not be their primary buying reason. You know, they want the best product. They want the most beautiful product. They don't sit down, uh, you know, at the kitchen table and do a, an exact TCO calculation at, you know, at how many miles is then the crossover. So maybe it's not their number one criteria, but you're right as the price of fossil increases and maybe also CO2 pricing to take into account the side effects of burning fossil gets put on to the original cost of, uh, of fossil energy. Yes, the TCO equation shifts more and more towards clean and less expensive uh, electricity. So yes, throughout this decade, I believe that we will gradually tilt that scale and some regulators and politicians around the world will want to tilt that scale in favor of fossil-free energy source, uh, as in electricity produced by uh, non-fossil-based uh, <laughs> uh, power plants. And then the TCO will switch towards EV, even though the variable cost of an EV is higher than what we were used to in the uh, combustion era. Is that specific to Mercedes? I mean, you're basically saying Mercedes buyers are pretty wealthy. The marginal cost of gas goes up and down, but they don't feel it. When I talk to other car CEOs, you describe them as the volume brands, which is great. When I talk to the CEOs of volume car brands at the lower end of the market, right, they are feeling the pressure of gas prices make people want hybrids and EVs, and the, the demand is moving because you can justify a new car purchase if you're going to spend less on gas when you know gas is over $5 a gallon. Are you just saying the Mercedes market segment is less responsive to that kind of pricing pressure? No, no. I didn't want to suggest that our customers are not economically aware or economically astute. They usually are very economically <laughs> aware and economically astute. Yeah. I just said that maybe it's not their buying criteria number one. But it is a criteria. So yes, I think that trend also will drive a, a positive shift for us towards EVs or rather accelerate maybe the shift towards EVs throughout this decade. One of the things that strikes me about the EQS and EQE, they are both large sedans. You have a smaller SUV that's not for sale in the States that is electric. The States is like an SUV country. You used to live in Alabama, I'm told. You worked at that plant and for Mercedes. Why do large sedans in the States when the market seems to be moving to SUVs? Uh, you need not to worry. So both <laughs> both the EQS and the EQE sedans have sibling cars that, in fact, we are industrializing in our operations in Alabama, so a place that is very dear to my heart. I spent uh, two different uh, times, uh, a total of six years in Alabama, so I love it down there. I have uh, great friends there. Uh, we have put a billion dollar plus into that operation uh, to get it EV ready. I was there in March opening our brand new battery plant that will serve the main assembly plant in Alabama. Uh, the EQS SUV uh, startup production has already started. We will launch that in the early fall. And the EQE, then a little bit higher volume SUV, is coming beginning of next year. And we're also launching in the U.S., uh, more or less as we speak, the EQB, so one size down uh, SUV that will also be available. And then if I look then like three, four years into the future, 
every conceivable SUV variant that Mercedes puts into the market will have a full dedicated EV version of it, and all of them will come to the U.S. And by the way, SUVs is not just a U.S. thing. It's a world thing. It's just as popular in Europe and also in China, although the sedan segments in Europe and China are also strong. Wait, wait, are you saying there's going to be an electric G-Wagon? I'm absolutely saying that there's going to be an electric G-Wagon, and it is only 24 months away. So coming soon. Is that thing going to have a range of like 50 miles? Like that's the least aerodynamic car in the market. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's aerodynamics uh, is ever <laughs> so slightly worse than the EQS uh, sedan. I agree with that. <laughs> but the iconic shape is in a class of its own. I recently joked, it's like the Birkin bag of Mercedes. You know, everybody wants one. The waiting time is really long. You have to apply. You're not sure you're going to get one. Maybe even the most desirable car in our portfolio. But jokes aside, we will put a sizable battery into it. We will, with uh, subtle changes on the aerodynamic (laughs) side, that will not destroy the iconic shape, at least improve it from where it sits today. And it will have a drivetrain that will blow your mind. You can literally, on a soft surface, you can turn on a dime. You can have two wheels going uh, forward and two wheels going backward. So we call it the G-turn. So on a dime, it just turns itself uh, 180 degrees and you can go in the other <laughs> direction. So the drivetrain is is crazy good. Uh, together with my boss, uh, Bernd Pischetsrida, we took it for a spin in the fall when we were meeting the G guys where this, this vehicle is being developed in, in Austria. And we went on to the dedicated, uh, very harsh test track that they have there. And um, uh, Bernd has been in the auto industry for 40 years plus. He has seen everything. And we kind of <laughs> stepped, we stepped out of the car and we go like, wow, from this point forward, going off-road is electric. So yes, absolutely, G is going electric. That's very exciting. One of the you mentioned a large battery. I feel like I should just do the rest of the show in the G wagon, but there are other questions to ask. You mentioned a large battery in the forthcoming G wagon. When I think about Mercedes as a whole, right? You historically made a lot of grand tours, large sedans, large SUVs that are meant to go long distances. That is still the issue with EVs broadly. Range anxieties. I think people care about. Talk to me on the first on the battery side, and let's talk about the charging side. On the battery side. Do you see developments coming that allow you to get to the the longer ranges beyond the sort of 300 miles everybody sees now? Yes, I do. But I think maybe we'll have a market development from a a consumer demand point of view that goes in, in two directions. I definitely see batteries coming with higher energy density. And even in the lithium iron technologies that we're in now, that gets better and better, there is still some leg room for energy density improvement there. And then you have some of the more game-changing technologies that are in the pipeline but are not yet ready for industrialization. Uh, One is the... um, silicon-based anode or almost all silicon anode where we work together with an American startup company called Sila. And we just actually recently announced that we will put in the electric G the first application of Sila technology into a version of the G. And that should uh, improve the energy density by at least 20%, maybe even 30%. So quite excited about that. Everybody talks about solid state. There are different horses in the race for solid state. When that comes to fruition, it's another opportunity. It's not yet in automotive-grade industrial uh, volumes, but that could uh, very possibly happen uh, sometime between 2025 and 2030. So yes, those things will lead to even higher ranges, although I have to say with the EQS sedan, if I use the European standard, WLTP, certification value up to 780 kilometers, maybe in real real life driving somewhere north of 600 kilometers. It almost takes care of all use cases. So very few times do you really run out of juice if you have one of those cars, but we will go beyond that. Then as charging infrastructure uh, proliferates, 
and we will have it in more places uh, and more public uh, fast charging available. I think many customers are going to realize, and my wife is one of them, by the way, you don't need that range. 99% of your trips are below 100 kilometers anyway. If it's not the commuter car going from, uh, I don't know, New York City to LA every other week, uh, <laughs> you're going to be fine with, with a range that is somewhere between two and 300 miles maybe, or even, even perhaps even less than that. And there you rather go for a smaller battery maybe with less expensive technology and then optimized variable cost of the product instead. So like in the old world where you had, I don't know, an E200, an E250, an E350, an E450, and it was all about displacement and, and horsepower, maybe the new currency is efficiency and range, and you have uh, an entry model for those that need less range, and you have then the ultimate for the people that do take longer trips quite often or go skiing every <laughs> every weekend or, or whatever they do. So both things we will work on, but there is a common denominator, and the common denominator is efficiency. Efficiency is the new currency. So next to perfecting the drivetrain, uh, we look at every aspect of the car, uh, the aerodynamics, the rolling resistance, all the other users on the car. I don't know if you caught that we did a kind of a fun thing, a science project that we called EQXX, where we challenged the engineers to go a thousand kilometers, real life, thousand kilometers on one charge. And the restriction that they had, they were not allowed to put a monster battery in. You, you, cannot, <laughs> you, you can always do it with a very big battery, but but you know, with a, with a size of battery that we have in series production today, uh, in and around 100 kilowatt hours, and they made it. They drove from south of Stuttgart to south of France, 1,008 kilometers, even had 140 kilometers to spare on one charge in a sedan that could carry four people. Yes, it was a little bit too extreme from an aero yeah. point of view and, and some of those things. But those technologies in that car some of them are going to be in series cars from Mercedes already in two to three years. So it's not science fiction, it's not fantasy, it's coming. We have to take another break, but when we come back, all this talk about EVs and battery range is going to come crashing into Tesla. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Before the break, we were talking about EV range and how historically Mercedes has valued making gas cars with a lot of range. You seem to be pushing that philosophy with EVs as well. Most people don't need massive range. On the flip side of it, sometimes you do. So even if you buy the smaller car, maybe sometimes you do want to go on the trip. And that's when the charging network becomes really important. I would say Tesla's main advantage is the supercharger network. We've seen other car companies come to the realization that their charging networks are not up to snuff to compete with Tesla. I just talked to Ford CEO Jim Farley on the site, and he said, look, we launched the Mach-E, and now we're doing the F-150 Lightning. We know we got to get better at charging. They have deployed a team of people to go around checking for bad chargers in the Electrify American network that they're partnered with. I think about the Mercedes customer rolling up in an EQE to some gas station with a broken charger off the side of the highway is not a luxury experience. It's not a luxury experience in a Mach-E. It's certainly not a luxury experience in EQE. Is that something you're thinking about? Oh, we've got to make that experience as good as the supercharger experience? Uh, the experience has to be convenient, intuitive, fast, and it needs to work. Up until now, we have done uh, mainly two things, and we will do more. 
the first thing we did was, and I think we were probably the fastest doing this, we put together the most comprehensive roaming system of every available charging point in the world. I think we have a 750,000 plus charging points that you can access through Mercedes Me Charge. Very few manufacturers, if any manufacturer, has the width of that. So almost like, you know, in Europe from cell phones, you go from country to country and you need to have a roaming agreement. That we did very quickly. So it's a good start, but it's not enough. On top of that, we have developed what we call plug-in charge. So now you get to that charging station, wherever. And I, I actually tested it with, with my colleague, Marcus Schaefer, when we drove from Atlanta to Alabama for the opening of that battery plant. He just stopped in the middle of nowhere in Alabama and see, let's see if plug-in charge works. So what does plug-in charge mean? You go up, up to that charging station, you just plug in, and then you leave. And the whole payment and everything is frictionless. The car recognizes it's this specific charging. It, it could be anybody from any provider. And that makes the convenient thing maybe even better than if you just have a proprietary charging network because you can go anywhere and everywhere. Having said that, is that enough? No. And here I kind of agree with Jim. We need to do more. <laughs> so yes, we are actively looking at how can we engage and maybe create even more and maybe even specific uh, Mercedes charging um, points. A little bit too early to tell on this specific podcast, but stay tuned. Uh, we are an active member of one consortium in Europe that is called Ionity, and Ionity is building along the highway network across all of Europe, a fast charging network. And we just uh, six months ago decided to treble that network. So we're very fast together with three or four other partners uh, doing one, let's call it for the community, but a high quality one for the community. We also speak to the energy companies. Many of the energy companies are now rapidly getting into this scene. I'm talking about the Shells, the BPs, those type of guys, uh, and also utility companies. So many people have recognized this is a space where money can be made as uh, transportation switches to electric. We have done a lot, but we haven't done enough, and we're going to do more. Do you ever talk to Tesla about opening the supercharger network? They've made a lot of noises about it in the past. There's some European countries where they're required to have it open and it's open. Are those ongoing conversations? I've read about that, but uh, not specifically spoken to anybody at Tesla about it. Do you ever think that you should just wild out on Twitter like Elon Musk? Is that never, do you, do you have like a PR person who comes and says you should just do some Elon stuff online? Uh, I am on LinkedIn, which I guess is, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Instagram for adults. Uh, so that is, far, that is as far as I've dared to venture in social media. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I use it as a communication tool uh, to attract talent for Mercedes and also tell the world what, what's going on. Not yet become a Twitter person. Uh, who knows? If I have something uh, meaningful to say, maybe I'll do it. But uh, LinkedIn has worked uh, quite well for us so far. <laughs> It's, it's the best LinkedIn plug we've ever had. I'll tell you, just don't become a Twitter person. It's uh, it's bad for you. It's bad, it's bad for me. Uh, let's talk about Tesla for a minute. Obviously, they are the elephant in the room whenever we talk about EVs. They have dominant market share with the three. They have dominant mind share because of Elon. Do you think your strategy is taking share away from Tesla for EVs total? Is it growing share? Is it maintaining your share of luxury vehicles with switching the mix. How are you thinking about that? Anytime an industry goes through a transformation or even a disruption, it is not unusual that new players look at that industry and go like, well, I could do that. Usually new entrants, they act as a catalyst to accelerate the transformation. And that's what we're seeing with new entrants, whether it's new entrants from the United States or new entrants in China, by the way. So we are watching the, the new entrants very carefully. We take them very seriously. Uh, some competent players there with, with interesting product. Uh, but we don't discount the usual suspects. Why should we? <laughs> Those are also uh, capable and competent competitors that are in the same kind of transformation race that we're in. 
But when you do that and you watch the competition and you benchmark the competition, if you try to run in uh, 10 different directions and you try to be somebody that you're not, you're definitely going to lose. You have to take a step back and say, what's my brand promise? Who am I? What's the soul of Mercedes-Benz? What do Mercedes-Benz customers expect? <laughs> what have we given them over the decades? And in its absolute core, Mercedes is a blend between a tech and a luxury company. We stem from innovation, the original startup. I joke inside the company, we're a startup. We just happen to be 136 years old. <laughs> so in our DNA, we have this inner unrest for what's next, always look beyond. So technology innovation is, is, is one piece of, of the uh, Mercedes persona, but the other one is it's the luxury, it's the aesthetics. If you take a walk around the Mercedes Museum and you go through the decades and you kind of, you see Clark Gable's car, you see, you see the Gullwing, you see all these beautiful, really pieces of art, you understand that if you want to make a Mercedes, you have to fulfill both promises. And in the future, an absolute given in a sustainable way, you need to decrease your ecological footprint and ultimately eliminate your ecological footprint. So with that mission in mind, we are 100% focused on giving our customers the Mercedes experience of the future. And being the combo between luxury and tech, we think is a strength. Some companies are tech, but not really luxury. Some companies are luxury, but not really tech. We think we are the best of both worlds. And you have to be competent in both disciplines if you want to win this game. Not forget how to make a real Mercedes. I mean, that's not irrelevant in the future. <laughs> all, of <those> <laughs> little, all of those little details, they count. You know, how quiet the car is, you know, the, the ride and drive, how sublime that is. How even if you know nothing about cars, it just feels right. <laughs> and everything kind of comes together, the aesthetics and so on. That's what we're focused on. And uh, we think we have a, a, a good foundation. Uh, we take nothing for granted. We're not complacent. We have to earn our right to maintain this, uh, uh, this legacy. And that's why we're investing so much into, uh, into these two new technologies and into exciting products. And, and then we'll see how the market shakes out. Sure. Two questions. One, some companies are tech but not luxury is a very pointed description. Are you, is that a reference to Tesla? I usually don't comment on any one competitor, so you will not draw out uh, a review from me of any one competitor. I'll, I'll talk about Mercedes, and Mercedes is a blend of both. It's my job to try. Particularly, I will say this, with European CEOs, the, the walls are very evident, so I won't push any farther, but I have to try. And then second, the question was not really about Tesla. It was about where you see market share for EVs coming from. Is it conquest of the existing share of which Tesla dominates, or is it growing the overall share and taking it from your ICE vehicles? So let's start from another point. Do we believe that individual mobility, the concept of individual freedom, and maybe something that we have been reminded of in these uh, past couple of years of a pandemic, a safe space, a cocoon, your cocoon, <laughs> where, you, where you can feel safe going from A to B. Do we believe that people are going to want to move more in the future than today or less? We believe people are going to want to move more. Do we believe that the premium and luxury segment where you have your own cocoon, your own beautiful, safe cocoon, do we think that's a concept that people that are buying in that segment uh, will still appreciate or not? We think most definitely people will appreciate that. So we think personal mobility is a growth industry. We think the luxury end of personal mobility is definitely a growth industry. Uh, as far as Mercedes is concerned, that luxury will turn itself into zero emissions. So yes, 100% of the volume one day will be electric. You know, 30 plus X, uh, we, we shall see, yeah. And on the road to that, I actually think we have in this twilight zone that we will have for many years, maybe we have not 100% cannibalization between EVs and, uh, and combustion for us. So we actually have like a little growth boost <laughs> through all the electric vehicles that we're adding in parallel. 
but the end game is whatever the size of the market is in 2030, 2035, 2040, uh, once you get to 100% uh, zero emission, then of course it's, it's, it's completely replacing uh, the previous technology. I want to end on autonomy. It, we have talked around it a bunch. We have not talked about it. It is the future. Mercedes has very advanced driver assistance features in the cars today. Some of the cars, I think one of the claims is they even have level three autonomy when it comes to parking garages where you push the button, it can drive the parking garage and park itself. When do you think the steering wheel is going away? So on this journey of driving assistance systems turning into uh, one day fully autonomous vehicles that can go by themselves anywhere, we're in the middle of that journey. It's one of the most exciting journeys and, and you know, one of the most disrupting technologies, actually, <laughs> more disruptive in a way than the switch of the drivetrain, because it's going to make traffic so much safer. Because once the computer knows how to make all those decisions right, uh, it will make those decisions more right than humans <laughs> and and uh, and make less mistakes. So we're super excited about this, since safety is one of the core values uh, of a Mercedes. And yes, you're right. We have now actually certified the first level three vehicle here in Europe, in Germany. So in some driving situations, you push the button and you take that giant leap of actually handing over the responsibility to the computer. And for the lawyers, so that they get to sweat to hand over the product liability <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to the computer. So it's not a step that you take lightly. If that was us putting a flag on the moon, the first flag on the moon, now we need to build a moon base. And yes, together with Bosch, we have also developed a level four system. You don't even have to be in the car. If you go to the airport in Stuttgart, you can drop your car in a zone. And then in that uh, parking garage with some technology that's actually in the building as well, the car can guide itself without you being in it. So you go and check in and you don't waste the time of looking for a, a parking spot in the garage. We all know the experience, right? Mm -hmm. It's just tedious. It's just not fun. If you can just let that be done by, <laughs> done by a computer, it's better. And I think that we will have an absolute revolution on these technologies in this decade. And in some of the applications, yes, uh, especially for shared mobility, I can see that steering wheel then also uh, disappear. Do you have a timeline, right? You have level three, you have level four, the level five is the last level, these levels, the definitions are, are fuzzy. Do you have a timeline in your head of, okay, the last disruption is most people get in their car steering wheel or no, and they will not operate the car? So I think before every single segment, it's quite expensive technology, especially if you want to go to level three or beyond level three. And as you say, the lines get a little bit blurred there. Yeah? So once you want to get to some sort of full autonomy, a lot of computing power, a lot of sensing, a lot of back end and so on. So it's maybe not something that you put in a $10,000 car. You can put it in a eighty dollars to $100,000 car in the beginning. So before the whole world goes to that, I think we're surely deep into the 30s or whatever. But I do think that in this decade, on the way to 2030, a lot of things will happen. We will have level two systems that will feel like level four systems. You're still responsible, but the car can almost do everything. So super assistance. We will have more situations where you can drive level three, and we will have also more examples of the valet parking level four that I mentioned. So it will be like a gradual shift into that world. It's not like black and white. You flick a switch and you go from all manual to all autonomous. It's step by step. And uh, together now with uh, NVIDIA, we're working on our next generation uh, driving assistance, autonomous automated drive systems. Uh, those are going to be in the market uh, towards the end of 2024 into 2025. I'm quite excited about what we're doing there. Very, very good cooperation with them. So uh, we're moving fast. All right. I want to end on a, just a very big think question that I think is very appropriate for Mercedes in particular. There's an, like a 2003 SL500 for sale down the street from me, and I look at it all the time. It's beautiful. You mentioned the Gullwing, the classic Gullwing Mercedes. You call it a piece of art. Every time I look at that SL500, it is down the street from me, and I look at it all the time. And it has just the world's worst infotainment stack. And I'm sorry. It's like it's very dated, right? It's an old screen. It's got a bunch of buttons. I think about that Gullwing, and nothing about it is dated. It is timeless. As you think about turning cars into computers with all of these screens and all of the software and then the timeless quality of a 
of Mercedes that you've brought up over and over again. Do you worry that it'll become like the iPhone four, like a beautiful object that I have in my home that is effectively useless because it, all of the infrastructure of software and cloud computing and stuff will not be there in the future? Or do you think you can still make the products timeless? So first of all, I would like to say, what are you waiting for? Reward yourself. <laughs> uh, uh, do I it. send the kid to yeah, college. Yeah, 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 do it. Like, well, uh, uh, what is an education compared to driving a Mercedes? You got to get your priorities right. I, when uh, I was a baby, when I first graduated from law school and I was a baby lawyer, I bought a C300. That was my moment. <laughs> that moment has passed. So I got well, you. Well, it, it can happen again. We, we have to yeah. talk after this, uh, after this podcast. Right. No, so, so what you're saying is, how do we make sure that it doesn't get dated in the digital age? It comes back to what we talked before. You have to look at that software stack as a river, not as a pond. And then you leave the pond. Uh, you got to be able to think about uh, backwards compatibility. Uh, if I look at an old Gullwing from 1955, can you guarantee backwards compatibility for 50 plus or 70 years? I don't know, man. Gullwing doesn't have any computers yeah, in yeah, it, we'll, right? We'll, like you just we'll, have to put gas in Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. But one thing I can promise you, you will still have an exciting drive and that might be worth it. <laughs> Just All right, that's a great yeah. place to end it. Ola, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Ola Shalanius for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly on at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have noticed, if you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.